Today, we are talking with Vint Cerf, widely known as a father of the internet. Vint is the co-designer of the TCP IP protocols and the architecture of the internet. He has won numerous prestigious awards. Vint is both an outstanding scientist and visionary. Since 2005, he has served as vice president and chief internet evangelist for Google. In this role, he is responsible for identifying new enabling technologies to support the development of advanced internet-based products and services. He is also an active public face for Google in the internet world. We will discuss how Vint views the future of AI, Google's role in creating the tools for improving collective intelligence and group individual performance, and workforce, workforce readiness through continuous learning and upskilling. So let's begin. Well, welcome, Vint. Hi, it's nice to be back. Thank you. Um, so, Vint, uh, you uh, are an evangelist for Google, and you've been in this field for, for quite some time. Um, can you please describe the challenge and the opportunity in the workspace as AI and other technologies become more prevalent? So uh, AI is a fairly broad term, as you know, and for many people, it refers to what's called general artificial intelligence or artificial general intelligence. What we're seeing right now and the, and the blossoming that's taking place is in machine learning, which is a kind of a narrower uh, notion of artificial intelligence and involves gathering large quantities of data and training uh, multi-layer neural networks in order to answer questions, roughly speaking, or to make decisions. Uh, based on uh, whatever that uh, data uh, implies. So as an example, uh, one of the um, companies that belongs to Alphabet, the parent company of Google, uh, is DeepMind, and uh, they developed something called AlphaGo, which was a program to play the game of Go, which it did so well that it beat an international uh, grandmaster four times out of five a couple of years ago. This is a very deep and narrow uh, kind of skill. Uh, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't solve the kinds of problems that two and three-year-olds are capable of, uh, of solving. So what's the opportunity here? Well, the big opportunity, of course, is that um, you can do things like speech recognition, uh, language translation, image recognition. Uh, a lot of uh, machine learning is uh, led to uh, uh, self-driving cars, for example, a great deal of image interpretation. Uh, has uh, has helped with that process. So the challenge, I think, is figuring out what are the things we can do with machine learning that are uh, useful and uh, practical. But certainly, in in the terms of speech recognition, uh, we certainly uh, all of us, I think, are encountering increasing amounts of voice interactions with uh, computer-based systems. Uh, there's uh, uh, at home uh, the, the home-based uh, device from Google. Uh, there's Alexa that uh, comes from Amazon. And these are all you know, voice, uh, voice interactions that are quite convenient, especially for hands-free operation. The um, more interesting challenge, however, is to figure out when these things are going to break, because it turns out they have brittle uh, characteristics. Some of it has to do with the kind of training data that's used in order to uh, essentially program the uh, multi-layer neural network. If the incoming data is biased in some way, then the decisions that come out uh, will be biased as well. And uh, detecting that turns out to be a challenge. Another one 
uh, is the, a brittle um, image recognition problem where changing just a few pixels in an image can cause the system to come to completely wrong results. Uh, like looking at images of uh, you know cats and dogs and things like that, change a few pixels, and, and although a human would recognize something as a cat, the system might say it's a fire engine. And you scratch your head when you see outcomes like that. Finally, I would say that uh, one of the interesting opportunities here is to treat these as tools to augment our own capability. So for example, when you do a Google search, you're doing something that no human being could do <clears throat> because the scale of the index of the World Wide Web is so big that even a large team of 100,000 people probably couldn't produce the kind of results that you get uh, with these systems. And they are increasingly taking advantage of uh, AI methods. In particular, in our case at Google, there's something called the knowledge graph, which incorporates a lot of real-world knowledge, which is used to inform uh, the uh, course of the um, uh, search that's being done across the index that's been uh, accumulated. So from my point of view, it's early days uh, for uh, this kind of artificial intelligence. And looming off in the distance, of course, is the possibility that we get AI capabilities that will take input from the real world and then formulate models of how the world works and reason about that model and, and solve problems associated with it. That's still in the, in the future somewhere, uh, but certainly a tantalizing possibility. Yeah, it sounds like it's Plato's philosopher king as algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Um, well, you've been evangelist for Google since 2005, and Google has been a leader in creating the future. And in creating tools, as you've mentioned, and um, our uh, departed colleague, Doug Engelbart, had a vision of improving collective intelligence of humanity as well as groups and the idea that people using these tools would use them for wonderful common good purposes um, and become smarter and better. Um, and so what do you see as Google's role in this future of raising collective intelligence, raising the intelligence of groups, and actually being a force for good? So, uh, well, we think that, uh, that we have made progress on many of these fronts, um, and I would also um, implicate some of our sister uh, organizations, partners in, um, in the alphabet soup, so to speak. Um, the uh, Waymo company, for example, which is, is building our self-driving cars, is a spin-out from our uh, Google X, which is uh, now a, a separate entity on its own. Uh, so let's look at infrastructure. First of all, we built a substantial computing infrastructure, which is distributed around the world and linked together by super high speed undersea cable. So that's a platform with, to which we offer people access. Uh, we run applications on that platform, Search being uh, one of the original ones, but we do all kinds of uh, AI related things now with, for example, language translation, where we handle something like 100 language pairs. Uh, using machine learning uh, mechanisms to do the translation. It's very handy, um, especially if you happen to be roaming around finding websites that are written in languages other than your native language. So that's an augmentation of human capability uh, right there. Uh, we also have built special purpose infrastructure, um, including things like the use of GPUs, graphical processing units, in addition to the more conventional CPUs. And we've recently added uh, a special brand of, uh, of processing unit called the TPU, 
uh, which is a tensor, uh, tensor flow unit, those uh, tensor processing units are uh, designed to do machine learning at very, very high speeds. We are also making extraordinary progress in quantum computing. Uh, we recently announced a 72 qubit system, which is gigantic relative to the one, two, three, four qubit systems of the recent past. Uh, so we're reaching the point where we can perform calculations using quantum me mechanisms that uh, are achieved results um, at, at a speed which is would would be frankly impossible, uh, and is is in fact provably impossible with the conventional uh, computing systems of the past. And those quantum processing systems will also become a part of the um, landscape in our uh, in our Google Cloud. Uh, we created the cloud, which is uh, a competitor to uh, other clouds like the ones at Amazon and uh, Microsoft uh, and IBM and so on. And those clouds are offering two things. Uh, they're offering an opportunity, ba a basic platform for others to uh, write their own applications, or uh, we offer applications that have been uh, pre-composed to help people um, carry on their work. So I see us as, as a tool-based company offering platforms and tools uh, for other people uh, to invent uh, new applications or to combine our various systems together. <clears throat> in addition to the traditional work uh, that Google has done uh, in software-related products, we've also added uh, hardware-related components. So we make mobile phones, for example. We make Chromebooks, which is a, a computer notebook. Um, device, we make pads of various kinds, and so we've gotten into that business as well, uh, and we expect to continue to expand that. The uh, creation of the alphabet structure, um, which, which is a holding company, has something like eight or nine uh, additional companies that, that, that Google has spun out. Verily, for example, is uh, doing a lot of work in medical instrumentation, medical devices, and medical analysis. We have another company called um, Calico, which is the California Life Company. They've noticed that people get old. They're trying to figure out why, and maybe we can prevent that. Um, something I get more and more interested in as I get older. We all um, do. We all do, yes, one day at a time. Uh, there's Sidewalk Labs up in New York, which is looking at how automated cities might run. Uh, so uh, there, and there are others as well. They, they keep coming. Loon, for example, was a uh, spin out recently. It puts balloons at 60,000 feet in the stratosphere uh, that drift around the world. They're, they actually are somewhat controlled, but they're tetherless, so they have to be managed in the, in the, um, uh, jet, uh, the jet stream, which is up at that altitude, uh, to move around the world at a particular latitude, providing internet access. Uh, so, I mean, this is quite an elaborate process, especially considering they're not uh, a tethered component. Uh, we've, uh, we've launched another one called Makani, which is a, a, an air-based um, wind, uh, sort of a, it's like a kite that generates energy, except it has uh, windmill-like uh, components to it. Uh, so the creativity and energy at Google continues uh, to uh, generate uh, new ideas, new products, new services, uh, and to provide them to uh, to third parties who will use those uh, to accomplish their own objectives. So from my point of view, this continues to be a very, very innovative uh, environment. You know, uh, let me ask a question, probably very inarticulate, but it's one that you can uniquely answer. There's been a lot of discussion about open source and creating systems 
vent that allow for creativity but provide structure. The TCP IP system that you and Bob created, and you've articulated this very, very well in other publications, was a system that had structure, that had a way, a protocol, and yet you did not create the websites. You didn't dictate what could or could not be on. You created a structure that enabled this creativity to happen. What I hear about at least some of what Google is doing and some of Google's vision is to create the tools, create the cloud, create the place or the space rather than the place for creativity and innovation to happen without a proprietary sense of either owning the data so that you make money off of what everybody does as, uh, as others have done and that you are creating in a sense a freedom that is unique to setting up systems that are open. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of a vision relative to, you know, you and I go back to the old days of, you know, beta and VHS uh, cassettes and you had to choose one system or the other, or Apple was proprietary software and you had to choose. App. So you know what I'm, I'm suggesting in terms of our history. Um, talk a little bit about this open source and this ability to create a market space where everybody can participate without a big brother dictating what the content is. So, so we do believe very much in openness and open source. In the case of the TCP IP, Bob Kahn and I gave away the basic architecture. The, the protocol uh, implementations were done. Some were reference implementations. Some were proprietary. Uh, but our point was to give away the, uh, the knowledge of, of that protocol design and let third parties build whatever you know, whatever they wanted to using it. Of course, they conferred interoperability, and this is one of the things that we care a great deal about uh, at Google. So our open source program has given away Chrome, the browser, for example, has given away Android, the operating system has given away Chrome OS, another operating system. Uh, so we try very hard to provide these kinds of tools and maintain them so that other people and build on top of them, but uh, by virtue of the commonality, they achieve a great deal of interoperability, and that means mutually uh, mutual reinforcement of value in many cases. So that's a, a, an important theme uh, for us uh, at Google. Um, of course, we also uh, believe very strongly in um, creating an environment where third parties can benefit. Uh, as is well known, our primary business uh, is in advertising. Uh, and what uh, what we do in that case is uh, is twofold. Uh, in the search process, we offer research results that we call na native or natural search results, but we also offer advertising, which is responsive to whatever it was that this party might have been searching for. And we charge for that. Uh, we also offer uh, a party who has created a website uh, with content that might be of interest to uh, someone an opportunity to allow us to use that website to put up some of the ads that we believe are um, responsive to the content on the website. Uh, and that we sh and we share the revenue that comes from that. And so in that case, we're helping other people monetize what they've created. The same is true for the YouTube uh, service, which uh, is another acquisition that we made some time ago. Uh, people can put up videos uh, on the YouTube uh, system, and uh, if, if they meet certain criteria, then uh, we will put ad advertising up um, to help the creator of the content monetize that uh, creation. And so the whole point here 
uh, is to create opportunities for people to uh, generate businesses that might otherwise not exist uh, by turning their knowledge and their creativity and their uh, content uh, capacity uh, into uh, revenue production. So we see that as a way of growing uh, a marketplace uh, for everyone, including ourselves, of course. That's terrific. Well, Vint, one of your other passions which we share is the democratizing of opportunity for individual workers to find meaningful work. And um, you've been very much involved in that effort. Um, and one of the areas uh, about people finding meaningful work for themselves is this quality of learning to learn. Can you explain the importance of learning to learn and what it means for individual careers, not for the enterprise, but for individuals in this new era? So we can see several things that lead us to believe, lead me to believe anyway, that learning to learn is a skill uh, which we are all going to need and benefit from. Uh, let me give you a scenario that children born today may very well live to be over 100 years old. And so you can imagine in today's paradigm, that probably means you have a job or you will work anyway for perhaps 70 years or maybe even 80 years um, if you're healthy and, and, uh, and you're enjoying what you're doing. But to have a, a working career of even 60 years or 70 years means that you will live through a period of time where there's great change in technology. I mean, just look at the last dozen years or so. It wasn't until 2007 that the iPhone came along. And look what that has done. I mean, the, the smartphone has become uh, a uh, extremely valuable and diverse, uh, diversely capable fixture in uh, the lives of billions of people. And that's just literally in a decade. So you can imagine over seven decades, all the kinds of things that might happen, the new kinds of work that will come along. Uh, indeed, some jobs will be uh, eliminated because they won't be needed anymore. Artificial intelligence mechanisms may, uh, may replace them. Uh, and we shouldn't be afraid of that. We should simply take that on board as the normal course of technological evolution. But the problem, of course, is that the jobs that go away are replaced with jobs that the people who did the old jobs may not be able to do. The only way they will be able to do them is if they learn new skills in order to do those, that new work. And so learning how to learn turns out to be really important, especially if you're going to have to do it over the course of a 70-year career. What's interesting is that people don't learn the same way. Some people learn beautifully by just reading. Some people have trouble learning that way, but they learn really well if they can do something, if they can watch someone else do something. I mean, think of the number of, of uh, times you might have gone to YouTube and said, how do I X for some value of X? Um, I remember doing that once, wondering how do I make uh, Chinese eggplant? It's a dish that we always order whenever, whenever we go to a Chinese restaurant, but I wondered, you know, how do you actually make that? So I went out to YouTube and I said, how do you make Chinese eggplant? I found 30 videos that showed me step-by-step step, uh, how to do that. And uh, so this is true for a wide range of questions that come up. So the point here is that figuring out how you learn best and then learning how to apply that so you can learn new things uh, is going to be important if you want to maintain a career, not even just a single career with one company or anything, but the ability to continue 
doing useful work because you will eventually have to learn how to do new things because the old work may no longer be necessary. So the, it, not only is it important to learn how to learn, it's also important to learn how to enjoy learning, you know, to want to learn. Right. Some people find, you know, learning, that means change. And they don't, like, why can't I keep doing my old job for the next 40 years and then retire? And the answer is because that old job may disappear at some point. And so enjoying learning new things, accepting the challenge, knowing that you might not work the first time, you might fail miserably the first time, uh, you should feel uh, confident that eventually your failures will teach you how to be successful uh, and that you shouldn't allow learning to become a daunting threat, but instead rather a wonderful opportunity. So this is something we need to instill in young people when they're uh, in early on in their lives so that they will be prepared to live productive lives uh, that will go on perhaps for a century. Well, as you know, I'm an educator and I work in the university system at San Francisco State University. And one of the points I made to my students using a quote of yours is that learning fast is no longer the most important thing. You know, when you do your SAT test, you're supposed to finish as many questions as possible in as short a period of time as possible. So we train ourselves that that's the objective of learning, to be able to fill out an SAT test quickly. Um, I don't know whether I use number two pencils still, but you remember. You know, <laughs> I do remember that. Yes, in a circle. In, um, fill in the circles. You know, exactly. Um, but your point, uh, and maybe you can talk a little bit more about this, is the objective of this learning should be showing what you can do. Uh, what can you do as uh, a way of having not only enjoyment, but market value, it is a way of translating learning into value, value creation. And maybe you can talk a little bit for the individual, because our book, The Interconnected Individual, Seizing Opportunity, the Era of AI and Platforms, Apps, and Global Exchange is all about the entrepreneurial mindset and taking charge of your learning experience. But a lot of people are confused that there's so many, there's a cornucopia of learning experiences so can you give us some insight of, of when you're looking at your learning program, your learning career um, plan, um, what, what does this mean in terms of learning to do? So first of all, I think that your point about showing what you can do, showing what you know how to do is really important. In fact, we look for that when, when uh, we interview people who are interested in coming to work for Google. One of the most important things uh, for us is to understand how you approach problems and problem solving, as opposed to a, some particular piece of knowledge of you know, a particular programming language or something like that. Because we know that over a course of a productive career at Google, there'll be multiple programming languages that will come about, some of which we've invented ourselves, some of which we adopt from others. Uh, and that everyone who is working here will, who is doing programming may ultimately have to learn how other languages than the one they might be best equipped at when they arrive on the doorstep. So, uh, so this idea of um, maximizing the value of showing what you can do, uh, I think, is, is opposed to what you know. I mean, think about how quickly we uh, resolve questions online. You know, when we do a Google search, for example, if you don't know a particular thing, uh, looking it up by way of Google is a very rapid way of uh, finding an answer. 
showing, for example, if you know how to compose a query, uh, how, to, how to get a resolution down from the 28 million responses that you got to, uh, to something useful uh, is important. But equally important is figuring out whether you got the right answer, whether you got an accurate answer. So now critical thinking suddenly becomes an, uh, an equally important skill uh, that uh, you would want to uh, uh, harness uh, and demonstrate. Uh, because when you use tools like Google Search, you are likely to encounter a fairly broad range of information, some of which is going to be wrong. And the question is, how do you tell? And although we try pretty hard to figure out which uh, you know, responses are in fact uh, valid or useful, we can't guarantee that. And so we, I expect people should learn how to think critically. Like, where did this information come from? Is there corroborating evidence from other sources? Did this information come from someone who was trying to get me to pick, to adopt a particular point of view? Uh, what motivation might they have had for that? These are all questions that people should normally ask themselves uh, as they try to get answers to questions that they're interested in. Uh, so these are these are skills. Just learning to learn, liking to learn, and critical thinking are you know three aspects of uh, of knowledge. I think that uh, we should value very highly. Well, Vint, as we look at at the tremendous changes in technology that are yet to come, let alone catching up to what now exists that you've been describing, how does technology affect and change our work experience? particularly as work is redesigned with AI. Now, we know the Google engineer is one type of worker, but the Walmart cashier or the waitress or the people who are in service industries where they are not working with technology creation, but rather they're trying to utilize whatever tools are easily learnable, et cetera, um, and we know that a lot of people will be displaced, and you've you've done a lot of thinking about this. So, um, so let's, let's look at the change of the work experience as it's redesigned with AI as a, as a focus. Well, it's certainly clear that, uh, that there are tasks that we would like to hand off to our, our electronic robot uh, to go off and do work for us and then come back and tell us what happened. Uh, most recently, uh, we've been hearing reports about, and we've been involved in, uh, uh, developing uh, voice interaction robots that will go off and and perform a task for you, like making a reservation uh, for an airplane or a restaurant or something like that, uh, it, using literally a voice interaction with a human being on the other end. Of course, eventually there may be a robot on the other end, and the fact that they're communicating by voice sounds so inefficient. Uh, I, I think there should be a small little protocol so that two robots that are interacting by voice can discover that they are in fact both robots and then drop into robotic uh, as a much more efficient exchange uh, than, uh, than some voiced interaction. But uh, the important point here is that people in all lines of work uh, are going to be affected by our ability to bring new um, technology to bear in the space in which they work. Now, sometimes I may simply be an app on a mobile, uh, but in other cases, think of, think of someone who is waiting on uh, tables in a restaurant for just a moment. Think about how hard that job actually is. Not so easy to, to replace. 
noisy environment, people that don't speak uh, your language very well necessarily, uh, can't make up their minds, uh, have questions for you about the nature of the food and whether or not you know, it has something in it that you're allergic to. You know, a whole series of complex interactions that have to take place. I have, and then to say nothing of the physical labor of bringing things back and forth, I have huge respect for people that work in those environments and I appreciate them. I could easily imagine uh, getting help, for example, we might have a little uh, robot that actually carries the food uh, to the right table uh, in the end and not uh, require a human being to do the manual labor. Uh, but but there there is a great deal of leverage to be had of, from technology in performing almost any task that I can think of. Uh, so, and if, even in the medical profession, for example, there's some very dramatic things happening with regard to 3D um, representations of the patient, uh, and particularly the part of the patient that is uh, subject to uh, surgery, in order to um, be better prepared uh, to be to have seen inside what's going on before you even make that the first you know cut uh, in surgery. Uh, can speed things up and can avoid some fairly uh, dramatic problems. So I think across the wide range of work, uh, you'll find technology uh, introducing uh, improvements uh, in and uh, leveraging the uh, capacity for success. I think everyone should be conscious of that and be looking for opportunities to take that leverage and use it. You know, uh, you and I come from a generation that Marshall McLuhan would call the print generation, where we read graciously books, and, and that was our medium of choice. Um, and our thinking processes, our way of conversation, our way of dreaming, everything was influenced by the media that we use, the technology that we use. And you remember Marshall McLuhan talked about technology as the extensions of man, and it changes our uh, neuroplasty, it changes uh, who we view ourselves and how we interact. So we can go a little more philosophical on this, Vint. You and I are interacting with a younger generation that has grown up using devices on the internet, and you think about the thousands of hours that young people have spent gaming. Not all of them are mindless games. Many of them have great skill sets of eye-hand coordination or mm -hmm. collaborative skills in certain games where they're working in teams. And there is um, a, a, a whole generation that has worked with this technology as natives. You and I are immigrants to this. Um, so when we're looking at individuals better preparing themselves for career opportunities um, with a different understanding of the work experience, some of the challenge, at least that I hear, is, look, I, I'm very good with eye-hand coordination, and robotics is the future, so why isn't the work structure rewarding or, or valuing my gaming as a way of being able to do good medical procedures because I'm going to, the, the guy who uses the scalpel cannot use the robotics or the person that is used to an online game as a way of uh, collaborating with others has a different set of skills than the people who met in, in conference rooms as you and I did for hours talking to each other face to face. So can you talk about this evolution of the natives on the internet and their skill sets and what you're seeing because the People you're working with at Google probably are all natives from 
when they were very, very young, I'm presuming? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, you, you should read Sherry Turkle's book, Alone Together. Yes. You get an idea yes. about what kinds of uh, the nature of interaction that uh, yes. these people uh, prefer. In fact, it's not necessarily a healthy kind of interaction. In many cases, they like texting because you're, you're forgiven if you don't respond to somebody's text. Whereas if you were in a face-to-face -face conversation, someone asked a question and you're dead silent, it's obvious that you're dead silent. Right. Uh, and it's and it's even awkward. In which case, a lot of these young people tend to avoid these face to face conversations or a phone conversation, I mean, an immediate phone conversation. So this is the learning of uh, human interaction skills may actually be a deficit uh, for some of the people who have grown up using these other alternative uh, computer mediated communication tools. And that's an interesting um, challenge in itself uh, to uh, remind ourselves that those of us who saw computer-mediated communication as this empowering thing, we didn't have to be awake at the same time in the same time zone and wasn't that great, uh, did not anticipate uh, some of the negative side effects of, uh, of this particular mode of communication. Uh, another issue associated with this is that uh, text communication uh, is has a potential hazard in it because when somebody sends you a, a message that's in text, whether it's an email or literally an SMS or something, uh, you can read it more than once. And of course, if this happened to be a particularly offensive message, uh, you will read it more than once and you will feel like whatever it was that was being said is being said over and over and over again, and then you get very upset. And then it leads to flame wars and other kinds of phenomena that we see in the email chain. Um, so understanding the side effects of these various media, I think, is very important in order to understand when you should shift from one medium to another in the event that you're not uh, not coming together. Vint, we will say goodbye and uh, thank you so much for for this discussion. We appreciate it. Take care. Well, thanks so much for the time. I appreciate that, and I look forward to another one. Bye for now. Bye bye.